the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In 20 of the last 24 Gallup polls, fully 60% of U.S. adults say there is more crime nationally than the year before. But even if there's only one incidence of robbery or assault in an entire year, if you are the victim of that crime, it's real, it's serious, and it could even be life-threatening. While theft and burglary account for the lion's share of crimes committed, coming in at number three, aggravated assault. You know, just by casually watching the news in almost any hometown anywhere in America, those numbers are significantly higher. The reaction to this kind of violence is pretty typical. Reduce your exposure when you're able and to be prepared. And while buying a firearm and obtaining a carry permit might be one response, it's complicated. In some states, it's impossible, and it's always potentially lethal. Crimes in the last year combined with defunding the police are forcing citizens, though, to look to alternative means of protecting themselves. As we look now at one of the most popular alternative means of self-protection, we're joined by Stephen Abund. He is the chief executive manager of Phaser LLC. And Stephen, thank you so much for taking some time to educate our listeners on this very important topic. I guess for all of us, we watch the news at night. It's getting pretty serious out there. And when you couple that with all this talk, of defunding the police, even as here in the San Francisco Bay Area, within the last week, it was voted in one of the largest and most violent major cities to reduce police funding by almost $20 million. Has to leave a lot of folks out there frustrated and certainly feeling as if, well, what are my alternatives? Lock myself in a house and pretend like I'm a prisoner? Craig, I agree with you. Uh, in light of the current environment, people have to be able to protect themselves and their family. And while some choose a firearm, others prefer not to go down that route, especially because of the liability issues and such. But what Phaser offers is an alternative to a more lethal means of self protection. We have professional grade weapons that are sold to U.S. law enforcement, tried and tested over the years special safety features in them that prevent overexposure that causes death. They're known as stun guns or conductive energy weapons, which can deploy from a distance of, you know, anywhere from point blank, basically, to to, to up to 25 feet. And in terms of the popularity, we are seeing police departments, for example, across the country looking at this as sort of their preferred go-to number one means of being able to temporarily incapacitate a violent criminal. And certainly by that means, it gives you the opportunity to then be able to stop them in their tracks, afford you the opportunity to escape, all the while having no lethal consequences. That's correct. And it should be noted, you know, alternatively in this industry, there's, there's basically phaser and taser. And there have been a lot of deaths associated with the overexposures that were proximate to the use of the taser weapons in law enforcement. And there's been a lot of controversy on that and, you know, groups that have been obviously against it. But with the proper safety technology built into our weapon, 
which uh, is, is our uh, safety shutdown circuit technology. It keeps it within the recommendations by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. The first responders on the scene have recommended that you keep the exposure to the human body on these weapons under 15 seconds in order to uh, prevent serious injury or death by overexposure. So it gives an extra measure of safety uh, where they don't have to count the seconds or try and guess where 15 seconds is. And in the heat of the moment, a lot of these law enforcement officers are not are not counting the seconds. And certainly in the case of citizen use, I mean, we're, we're not looking to apprehend a criminal here. We're looking to incapacitate an individual in order to give the citizen the opportunity to break free, to escape, to get out of that circumstances and ultimately protect their own lives. So at the end of the day, this is really a means by which, as I'm understanding you explained to Stephen, by which both parties' safety is being protected. And I know that might seem ironic that we're interested in protecting the safety of a criminal, but at the end of the day, nobody wants to be at a trial having to explain why you pulled the trigger, why the perpetrator is now dead. It just gets to be a little bit too involved. So this is a safe way then to essentially temporarily incapacitate the perpetrator to give you an opportunity to escape and protect your life and your property. That's exactly right. You're using a professional-grade weapon to do so as well. The crime rates are without question on the rise. The fundings, obviously, are slowing the response time of law enforcement uh, on the scene of, of a call. You know, obviously, they're doing their best to get there on the priority one calls, but uh, it's still lagging what it used to be because the fundings are lessening the amount of resources that they have. So the individual has to be able to protect himself and he has to be able to protect his family. It's critically important. And sadly, as we've seen statistics here in the San Francisco Bay region over recent months, we've seen a significant uptick in not only these types of the crimes of opportunity, but they seem to be targeting elderly individuals, those that in and of themselves on their own are less capable of being able to repel an attacker. And that's where the technology of phaser really comes in. And for folks that maybe are are a little bit unclear as to exactly how this works, and most importantly, some of the advantages that are offered through phaser, help us understand how the technology works and what makes your product in particular so different. Well, we have a safety first approach to our design of these weapon systems, which we've just kind of covered with our safety shutdown circuit. But uh, we designed the weapons with simplicity of use, basically, from the standpoint of an operator using these weapons, similar to like the revolver of the Old West, I mean, point, aim, and fire. So there's not a lot of complication to it. You activate the weapon, you aim the laser at the target center body mass, you pull the trigger. It shoots two dark projectiles out in order to complete the circuit. They both must attach to the clothing or the skin. It puts out about 55,000 volts, 2.3 milliamps at about 24 pulses per second. That high-frequency pulse never allows the muscles to fully contract or expand. So it drops the target in you know, less than half a second without them being able to command their muscles uh, to do anything. It's a five-second ride. Initially, it shuts down automatically after five seconds, and then it will allow you to pull the trigger again, and you can do that up to three pulse strings or three trigger pulls total for a total of 15 seconds before it shuts down completely. If you need to use additional force and it can be justified, you can override that safety and pull the trigger again or another three times. And at the end of the day, going back to our earlier discussion, this is really about being able to temporarily 
incapacitate the perpetrator in order for you to break free and run to safety, be it the safety of a building or the police department or just getting out of that scene. Help us understand something, too, if you would, Steve. You know, back in the days, folks used to carry blackjack or something of that sort that they would use to protect themselves, but it required of the individual a certain degree of brute force. You had to have some strength, and it put you pretty much in direct contact with the perpetrator. And perhaps for an older adult, maybe not too stable on their feet, maybe confronted by a perpetrator that is much larger, much stronger, there's a tremendous sense of intimidation. How does Phaser help folks get that distance to give their greatest sense of safety? Well, just aiming the laser at someone from a distance, commanding them to keep their distance, in 85% of the cases, 80 to 85, somewhere in that range, it's going to deter them completely to go the other way without even having to shoot them. So, I mean, that's obviously a key factor. But having distance, knowing that you can deploy those darts upon whoever's coming or aggressing toward you is a critical factor. I mean, you don't have to be large. These are lightweight weapons. They're very well balanced. They've got a a rubber uh, non-slip grip, and it's also non-conductive over the handle. It's a three-finger groove, so it fits very comfortably in the hand. You know, we've got ratings at 98% on the grip. It's the best grip in the industry. So uh, as far as control over the weapon, it's very easy to control. And so this is something that would then give the user a sense of confidence that it feels comfortable in their hand, it feels normal as they touch it and use it. And most importantly, because you're able to deploy from a distance, that helps to increase a person's own sense of self-safety and security. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, we do recommend they practice with it. Obviously, like with any weapon training that you take, it's critically important that you know where the darts are going to lay when you shoot them at the target. 85% of the deployments, at least in law enforcement, take place between 8 and 13 feet. And that seems to be the you know, the most effective and accurate distance to fire these things. Stephen Abood, who is the Chief Executive Manager with Phaser LLC. Information, by the way, available on the web at Phaser, that's spelled with two Zs, P-H-A-Z-Z-E-R-U-S dot com. That's PhaserUS dot com. And we'll share that address again toward the end of our conversation. Stephen, as you and your team were developing this self-defense weapon, give us a sense of the kind of profile. What kind of a person did you really design this for? No, it was originally designed for law enforcement, but we really started doing a strong shift after uh, defundings and all of the riots and all of the crime rates seem to be going up across the country. That combination, obviously, is not a good combination and increases the chances of the civilian to fall victim to a crime just because there's more crime, less police and putting them in harm's way. So we brought our professional grade weapon to the to the American public. And of course, the regulations on the use of this will vary from region to region. But one thing folks no doubt would be interested in, and that is training. If I purchase a weapon like this, where can I access training? Because I want to make sure that when I deploy it, hope I never do, but when I deploy it, I'm doing it properly along the way. Now, we have various training programs. We're setting up senior instructors all over the country right now. We also have an online version that has interaction to train the civilian as well. Training is an important factor, and understanding how to operate these things is important. Even though it's very simple to operate, it's important to take care of it and use it when you're supposed to use it and not be offensive with it. Use it more of a defensive device. Federally, the ATF classified it as a non-firearm 
due to the nitrogen propulsion system built into the cartridges. So the darts are not propelled by a pyrotechnic. So with the N2 container, it's one burst, it shoots the darts out, and it's classified as a non-firearm. So you don't need a federal firearms license. So at least federally, it's not something that you have to concern yourself with. And in most cases, uh, in most cities and, and states in the country, there's no other license uh, requirements either. So, But I do recommend that they check and see what the carry policy is or the for the laws and our statutes uh, in that state. Consumers look at this as a sense of peace of mind, and you know, y- you never know. You can be in the nicest neighborhood and accidentally have an encounter. Would you be prepared to be able to defend yourself and your family? Well, Phaser certainly is one opportunity for you to take that can allow you to have a weapon handy that is non-lethal, that can be there, put distance between you and a perpetrator, and most importantly, to give you an opportunity to break free from that encounter, even save your own life. More information available on the web, phaserus.com. That's P-H-A-Z-Z-E-R-U-S.com. And Stephen, I would imagine there, in addition to getting a look at the product lineup, there's also information related to training, what's available, and how folks can get better educated as to how a tool like this can be effectively used for safety and security. Absolutely. And we have fully trained staff for any questions. If uh, someone doesn't want to order one off the cuff, certainly call our 800 number at the bottom of the homepage and someone will be able to answer any questions that they might have or concerns and that relate to the weapon system itself. And we'll make sure they're well informed prior to purchase. Peace of mind and most importantly, the satisfaction in knowing that you're taking the appropriate steps to protect yourself and your family. More information available on the web, phaserus.com. That's P-H-A-Z-Z-E-R-U-S dot com. And our thanks to Chief Executive Manager Stephen Aboond for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Thank you, Craig. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I had a friend when I was growing up in um, high school days and was involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and This guy was a great believer, really had a heart for the Lord, uh, was found faithfully in church on every Sunday, uh, had a voracious uh, desire and appetite for the Word. Every time there was a prayer opportunity, a prayer meeting, something of that sort, he was there. He was just one of those really faithful guys. And yet, in the entire time that I knew him, I recognized that this guy dealt with a degree of shame. Now, in his case, the shame wasn't necessarily because of anything that he had done or failed to do. But, you see, he came from a household where his mother had died years before when he was younger, leaving the surviving parent, his father, with himself, a younger brother, a younger sister. Uh, Dad was kind of a rough-and-tumble kind of character, uh, had been a truck driver, inconsistent when it came to work, so... The house wasn't in a very nice neighborhood. The lawns were never well kept. The house was never well maintained. The kids were never well dressed nor never well fed. Though they were all decent human beings, there always seemed to be kind of this cloud of shame that this friend of mine carried, even as a believer, uh, because he couldn't invite people over to his home. He felt embarrassed at times because His father, being kind of the rough-and-tumble guy, would use uh, foul language and things of that sort, so there was a degree of embarrassment. And um, I always wondered, boy, what kind of a cross is that for us to bear as believers when sometimes we deal with the, the pain of worthlessness or rejection or just downright shame? 
Well, my guest tonight has written a book that tackles this very issue. Uh, down through the years, he's authored quite a number of best-selling books, uh, including When People Are Big and God is Small, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, Depression, Stubborn Darkness, many others, including his latest book entitled simply Shame Interrupted. How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. And Ed Welsh, great to have you on the program tonight. Craig, yeah, great to be with you, too. I really, uh, really enjoy thinking about this particular topic, and um, I'm looking forward to our time together. You mentioned to our listeners that you are a licensed uh, psychologist and faculty member of the um, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, a highly respected organization, and you've, you've tackled an issue here that kind of kind of rides down below the surface, I think, in the lives of a lot of believers for different reasons. Now, I shared at my opening remarks the, the shame, the sense of shame that this friend of mine had for so long, that sent, that kind of foreboding sense of, 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 of guilt about this and never knowing quite what to do. I mean, is this something that we need to maybe right out the gate differentiate between guilt and shame or the sense that we'll get under some some circumstances of conviction of the Holy Spirit? Kind of delineate that for us, if yeah, you would. I think that's an important one, but let me go. Let me go back a little bit. You're 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 wrestling with the question: how how big is this issue? And and if we go to scripture, it it, it seems to advertise shame is in, in many ways the the premier human struggle. You know, so you know you have Genesis: they were naked and without shame. Well, that's just you know it's like a it's like a, the, the story being given away right at the beginning where. You know, it's setting us up to see, okay, then they were naked and with shame. And, and really, the entire Bible becomes a, a, a wrestling with this question, what do I do with this sense of shame? So I, I think you're, you're saying something very, very important at the outset with your illustration. Well, here's a guy who was struggling with it. But if, if Scripture is true, what we'd expect is that we're going to find, we're going to find touches of this in every single person. And, and some of those words you use to describe shame, they, boy, I would imagine just about every American would say them. I feel like a failure sometimes. I feel worthless. Who, haven't, who hasn't said that? Um, I feel unlovable. Uh, and, but here's, here's the sort of the twist that shame gives unlovable. Uh, I'm unlovable, but other people aren't. You know, other people are lovable, but I'm not lovable. There's something... There's something especially not quite right about me. That's un, it's under those experiences that we find this this thing that Scripture calls shame. And as you point out, this is something that we really have struggled with since the beginning of mankind. I mean, we, we've got that illustration very early in the garden uh, with the creation of mankind. There he was, there she was, in our in our uh, complete glory. Uh, there was never any sense of guilt or shame uh, until then, of course, uh, of the eating of the knowledge of the tree of, of good and evil. And suddenly, man in his nakedness went from that state of being without shame to suddenly burdened down with shame. And this is something that, of course, is, has followed us to one degree or another ever since. And and if we if we follow the, the storyline in those first chapters of Genesis, we find this this very concise picture of shame, and it seems to revolve around a triad of three things. Well, first of all, you feel naked, obviously. You you feel exposed. You feel like you are being seen. Somebody others can see you, and you're not quite right. That would be one experience of it. You just feel exposed. Uh, second is, and you, you find this in the Genesis story, you feel like an outcast. 
you feel like you don't belong anymore. And I would say that that's, in many ways, that's really the key experience. There's something about you that you don't fit in. And I can remember one uh, this, this, this moment I had in high school where, of course, I, like everybody else in high school, felt like I never fit in. But then I'd have these conversations with my friends, and I found... These guys who were, you know, you know, great guys who, who just seemed like they had everything, they didn't feel like they fit in. You know, you begin to realize, does anybody feel like they belong? And it's an elusive human experience. The other part of the experience is you feel unclean. There's something dirty about you. And, and Craig, I think that's where that link between guilt and shame can get a little fuzzy, where, okay, you feel dirty, you feel bad. Well, I think, I think many of us have this instinct that if we feel bad, it means we've done something bad, we've done something wrong, and, and we, we tend to look for something to confess. And, and certainly shame can occasionally be because we have done something we feel like is so wrong. It's, it's a different kind of sin or a different kind of wrong than other people have committed. And so there's that sense we, you know, well, for example, I, I uh, drove to work today and I expect if today was not like any other day, I rolled through a stop sign or two. And, and is that breaking the law? And I'm not trying to say I'm proud of it, but, but I'm willing to acknowledge it because I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hoping that, that you rolled through a stop sign today too. And, and, and so you're, you're shaking your head and say, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I know, I know what you're talking about. But there, there are other kinds of wrongs that we could talk about where nobody's shaking their head and they're just sort of looking at us. So occasionally, the, the bad that we feel is a result of, of what we've done. We just feel like what we've done is very different and, and more disgraceful than anything anybody else has done. The other, the larger part of shame, which you've already spoken about, is, is we feel bad, we feel unclean, but it's, it, you, can, you can confess all day and it's not going to make any difference. Um, it's because we are associated with things or people that have done unclean things to us. And, and certainly, you know, you, you've mentioned one, just associations with poverty and not having anything. Well, there's the literal sense of feeling worthless and not fitting in. The, the other illustrations that, that probably most of us would immediately think of would be some kind of sexual violation where you have been, it's not what you've done. You feel, obviously, you feel dirty, but you can't confess that dirtiness because it's a dirtiness that somebody else has thrown on you or somebody who's been divorced. Um, the same thing. If they were on the bad end of, div- of divorce where, where the spouse left them, there, there's a sense that there's something wrong with me. There's something bad about me. And it's not because of what they've done. It's because of what has been done to them. So, so shame really is a much larger struggle if, uh, than guilt. Guilt can be one part of shame, but shame is a much, much wider experience. Tackling the topic today as we're joined by best-selling author Edward Welsh, a look at Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with best-selling author Ed Welsh. He is a licensed psychologist and faculty member of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And uh, amongst the number of titles that he's written down through the years, his latest, Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. 
Let's um, maybe kind of dive a little bit deeper into this topic, Ed, as we help folks understand sometimes the difference between what maybe can be good shame in letting us know, and maybe I'm not using the right phraseology here, but letting us know that there's something amiss in our lives that we need to address versus the kind of shame that's kind of brought upon us typically by circumstances that oftentimes are either outside of our control or, or, or had nothing to do with our own actions. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I guess I guess I tend to think about it this way. I think of of guilt has a bit more benefits than shame. <laughs> where where guilt, you know, our conscience can remind us, hey, I did wrong, and it's time for confession. Shame is it, it tends to be much more renegade, and and I. I I don't find really that often in Scripture. Occasionally you find it, um, but but very infrequently do you find in Scripture the encouragement for people to experience shame. There were times where Israel was just completely hard-hearted, and and, and the Lord essentially says, "Shame on you! Uh, you you have you have no shame anymore." But but when 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 I see the Lord dealing with individual people, especially when we race up to the New Testament and see Jesus in action, all we see is just this incredible compassion. For those who wrestle with shame, so, so I, I think the scripture is much more interested in that question. Okay, here's this, here's this soul deadening struggle that human beings can have. What is the way through it? Working through that is is a process, isn't it? And it's a process that can be different for everybody. And and I would imagine a lot of it comes down to. Flipping the the perspective, in other words, oftentimes that shame is based on how we perceive others and how they perceive us. Do we then have to kind of move beyond that to begin to see the way God perceives us? Yeah, boy, absolutely. I think you, you just you just hit hit on something very important that 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 you know I want to learn of these things as we're speaking as well and. And as, as we understand the way God works, it's not, oh, oh, all of a sudden, in a half hour, we're going to be free of shame. It's, it's what we're, you know, what we're looking for is just maybe just a little glimmer, you know, just something that, 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 that approximates hope, okay? And just something that surprises us a little bit, where we say, oh, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting our God, the Holy God, to have this kind of concern for, for outcasts. That, that's what we're looking for, just in, a, in one sense to be intrigued by a God who doesn't, who doesn't conform to our expectations. And, and one of the things you said when you talked about the phone lines being down is, is probably relevant to right now, too, where in a sense what, what the Lord says, I think, is, is, is listen, okay? Just, just sit down and, and listen, and which is so unusual for that that's surprising in and of itself for people who wrestle with shame they feel like they have to do something they have to wash themselves more they have to they have to somehow be a fail a, a success before they're able to to be able to appear before God and other people but but what you have in scripture is a god who says listen listen to listen to stories of people who experience shame and watch watch my affection for them and and then story after story in Scripture, that's, that's what we receive. You know, what struck me so interesting, going back to my, my central example earlier on of this friend of mine who had grown up in, you know, less than ideal circumstances, I, I always took note of the fact, Ed, that here was someone who, because he was not a person of, of great wealth or of status, had a very easy time in showing a sense of compassion toward others. 
Uh, here was someone who would volunteer during the holidays at a soup kitchen to help feed the needy during Thanksgiving and giving and Christmas and so forth. Um, who, even though he had limited means, uh, was someone who tithed frequently, was was eager to do something to help somebody else mm-hmm. out who was in need. His his own life experience gave him the ability to see need in others, and yet. When he turned that mirror on himself, he saw someone that was a loser, who was worthless, who didn't feel comfortable going to certain events because he couldn't dress as nice as the others. It's amazing how there was a degree to which the shame taught him things about others that enabled him to become more understanding, more caring, more compassionate, and yet as much as it benefited him to a degree in that sense, Mm -hmm. never benefited his own viewpoint of himself. But it's a, it's a good starting point, what you're saying, where, where, where people who struggle with shame, you know, it, maybe we could put it this way, an outcast can recognize other outcasts. Okay. They, they have keen eyes for other outcasts. And, and, and that seems to be the story of the New Testament, where here comes, here comes the king, and, and you know, he's, you know, his birth is announced with angels and prophecies, but but if you're an outcast and you start reading through the very beginning of the New Testament, what you say is, hold it, here's, I recognize this guy, okay? He doesn't belong either. He's on the outs as well. Here's a per. I recognize him. Is it possible that he might even recognize me? And, and, and then the, the, the greatest indignity, they go down to Egypt. It's, you know, you know, Egypt is just a horrifying thing for a Jew. That's, you know, that's where they were enslaved. And, and so he spends a, a couple early years in Egypt. You know, episode after episode, you look at you look at the Messiah, and, and and an outcast is able to spot Jesus better than anybody else because he is like them. And then then when you then when you watch his ministry take shape, it's it, it's the most peculiar thing. I mean, if you want to have a reputation you go among the movers and the shakers and the influencers and 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 Jesus was immediately on the outs and he was on the outs with the mover and shakers because here you remember that original complaint hey he can't be one of us because he eats with sinners mm-hmm. and and tax collectors he he eats with people who are on the outs he eats with the unclean which makes him unclean himself and and that was that was the original rap against Jesus that he associates himself with the outcast and and so you know to to use your friend as the illustration what we're you know what we're doing is okay you got it you recognize another outcast so watch him watch you know watch him walk through life now now notice this do you see that that outcast Jesus Christ he makes a beeline toward you okay and and most people who really wrestle with shame is sort of their full time job. They they don't believe it. And and I think well, you know, the, the scripture goes on and says, well, let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more. But at some point, I think those who wrestle wrestle with shame, they they're going to have to do something. So in in a sense, the Lord says, hear the stories, just listen. And then he says, okay, now respond. And, and the response can be as simple as, amen. Okay, Lord, I believe. <laughs> I believe you even pursue me as an outcast. I believe that you, and here's, here's a term that scripture uses, you turn your face to me. And when somebody turns their face to you, it's this, 
It's a sign that you belong to them. It's a sign of their pleasure and their goodwill towards you. At some point, those who wrestle with shame, they're going to have to not only hear these beautiful words, but they're going to have to say, yes, I believe them. I believe that they're words that, that, that the Lord says to me. We're so comfortable sometimes living in kind of that pain because it's something that's very familiar, that sense of worthlessness and inferiority or living with rejection, humiliation, failure. And certainly a lot of people these days in light of what's transpired in the economy, uh, people who have worked hard at their career um, and achieved a modicum of success and then suddenly because of no fault of their own lost a job lost a home, have not been able to regain employment, and they're walking around with that sense of shame. Let's talk about that angle when we come back. And turning about perspective on this topic, uh, seeing this as God sees us, seeing ourselves as God sees us. Shame interrupted. Best-selling author Edward Welch with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've got best-selling author with us today, Ed Welsh. His latest book is called Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Got a number of best-selling books to his credit. He also serves as a licensed psychologist and faculty member at the notable Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Been dealing with this topic, and you know, if you're someone who walks around, who lives with, who is an intimate of shame, that sense of rejection and worthlessness and weakness, humiliation, failure. And boy, certainly that that sense of failure, I think, is something that so many people these days, Ed, in the wake of what's been going on with the economic decline, have really had to struggle with. What kind of advice, what kind of insight can you offer to somebody who's who's walking around with that kind of shame, lost the job, lost the house, they feel like they're failure at caring for their family, and yet, what do they do? Uh, there's... There's nothing unique to this particular era in how we measure who we are by how much we make. And 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 I don't live in the Bay Area, but but I would think that it would be only be more obvious in in the Bay Area. There's nothing unique to that because I think you found the same thing in the New Testament. And because the you know the poor they were they were the ones who were literally were worthless. Um, and you know that's that's you know, a prominent way we measure our worth. What's our income? What's the status of our job? And and, and so I think there there are a couple of things that that Scripture does, well, that, that Jesus does. The the first thing is he says, hey, this is not a mirage. It's not simply you love money so much and you love your reputation. Uh, Jesus is is acknowledging that poverty and and financial difficulties are truly hard thing. And the hard things that, that 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 can be experienced shamefully before the community, and and then you keep your eyes open in the scripture, and and so here, Matthew chapter five, for example, it's you know one of one of the the early discourses that that we have from Jesus, and here's how it starts: <laughs> yeah, Blessed are the poor, mm. blessed are the poor. Now now that's not going to make people out of a job feel really you know real, real nice all of a sudden. But it, it should capture our attention just a little bit, where once again, it's as if it's as if Jesus is aiming for the outcast and the shamed. That's they are his people, and and so so it's very intentional that he starts out the beatitudes by saying, "Blessed are the poor." He's he's showing how things are not the way they seem. That those who are outcast 
are those are the people of the living God. They are the ones who belong ultimately to the king. And, and what does he say? I think that's the one where he says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven. And again, it's you know, like you said earlier, this is a process. Um, and, and nobody's going to go away saying, oh, this is, okay, great, my shame is all done now, and I, I feel fine about not having work. It, it's, it's one of the just, big um, wedges, though, that we need to address here is to understand that in this process, ultimately, um, without regard to what the source might be of our shame, sometimes it's controllable, a lot of times it isn't, to mm-hmm. ultimately understand that each and every one of us were bought with a price and that there is much that can be said about that um, that ultimate and enormous Christ, uh, sacrifice that Christ paid for us, uh, so that in and through that sacrifice, that 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 enormous pearl of great price, as Scripture says, uh, we can learn to 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 see our identity as He sees our identity and be able to shed that sense of shame after a while. I think what we're saying is that we we tend to think that the work of Christ on the cross is for forgiveness of sins in the narrowest sense. But but you know here's the problem: you go into the courtroom and and the judge says you're you're not guilty and you're forgiven. You leave the courtroom and you still feel disgusting. Well, you know in some ways the the verdict doesn't make a whole lot of difference. You feel you still feel like a disgrace. I think what we're what we're what we're moving toward is what happened at the cross is much bigger than we will ever ever imagine, and and in, in that forgiveness of sins we have been given Christ Himself, and 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 we and and here's shame is about associations. Are you associated with your poverty? Are you associated with the person who abused you? Uh, are you associated with your sins? Well, what what Jesus does at the cross is he. He snips all those old associations, and he says, "You are you are now associated with me." And and so you know, there's that, that wonderful passage in Peter: "You are chosen." You know, this is these are all words specifically to those who wrestle with shame. A chosen people, you're chosen. Okay, a royal priesthood, you're rich. Uh, a holy nation, you're 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 even more than clean. You're holy. And then that, that, that thing that Peter says, a people belonging to God, a people belonging to God. That's all part of the package of, of the gospel of Christ. The, the gospel is for our guilt, and the gospel is for our shame. Isn't it interesting, too, I think of that passage, the people belonging to God, people that God calls having been set apart. So often we think of ourselves in the negative sense of having been set apart as being an outcast, um, and so forth, and yet to understand that there is another type of being set apart, called by his name, paid for by his blood, where now all of a sudden we can understand that that being somebody different than the rest can actually be something very special. It's it's it, 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 it's amazing the way the scripture uses the same kind of words. Um, yeah, you're set apart. Now it's a set apart like you're okay. You're on the traveling baseball team. <laughs> now you're set apart. You're you're in this elite organization. Now you're set apart where you are absolute. You are the one who is known by name by the king. So so it's a set apart, but it's a set apart that warms our soul and. And says that we, you know, that here's here, here. This seems to be the very hub of Scripture, where where the Lord says to us in Christ, "I am yours, and you are mine. We are pe- people belonging to God. That's what we're set apart for." Ultimately, Ed, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. 
For those that have been eavesdropping on our conversation this afternoon that say, boy, you guys have really nailed it. You are articulating exactly where I'm at. How do I begin getting on this road to understand that I can go from that sense of being an outsider, an outcast, to understanding what it means to take on the mantle of being set apart in his name? How does that process begin? I, I hate to seem self-aggrandizing and, and, and talk about my own book, but but that shame interrupted book is it, it's really looking at it's basically just looking at scripture, but looking at it through the question, what do I do with my shame, and, and just watching these beautiful words unfold. So, so so that you know that can be sort of a, a coach, a friend, if you will just to help people have eyes to see how scripture does speak to shame over and over again and 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 once you once you see it once you're able to see those beautiful words then you don't need the help as much and you can just jump into scripture and see them but going back to i think what you said earlier it's just allow that little little nugget of hope to just settle in okay that that maybe our god says things to our sense of disgrace and worthlessness it is much more than we ever imagined before. Just to have that hope, that's what a great place to start that would be. Indeed so. And, and hope is, I think, an, an internal and, incorpor- and important word uh, that can be a central starting point of our focus. You know, when blame shows up on the doorstep, uh, we're having that sense of shame. Uh, we feel like we're worthless. We've been rejected. We're outcast. Um, to begin to incorporate God's viewpoint on who we are. Uh, and to begin to see ourselves, not necessarily through how we perceive others see us, but rather how we should understand God sees us, is the important difference when it comes to shame interrupted. The new book, by the way, which, as we mentioned before, um, is uh, published by New Growth Press. And uh, you can get more information online at newgrowthpressbookstore.com or through any Bay Area bookstore. And our thanks to best-selling author Ed Welsh for being with us tonight here Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.